the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic, joined, as always, by the writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. And also uh, by the Arsenal legend. I call him that every week because he is an Arsenal legend, uh, even though he apparently doesn't <laughs> listen to what I say. Uh, no. It's Lee Dixon. Uh, Hello. Good I afternoon, didn't, I didn't Lee. listen when you call me a legend, obviously. I've got selective hearing. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, it's nice uh, to have you all here. Uh, we, well, I say here, you're Hello. there, but it doesn't matter. Um, today, today we are going to talk uh, about, uh, well, one of the greatest players uh, ever to play for the Arsenal, uh, one Patrick Vieira. Amy uh, has written uh, a piece uh, about Patrick Vieira. You, you wrote a piece about his debut, did you not? I did, and it's one of those games that really sticks in the mind um, years later. And I've thought about it quite a lot since and talked to people about it who were also there. And everyone seemed to have this this same experience of, um, I don't know, it almost felt like something out of a cartoon when a sort of 40-tonne uh, weight comes and smashes you, you know, on the head and you disappear into the, you know, the, 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 the floor beneath you kind of cracks open and, whoa! Because nobody had ever seen anything like Patrick Vieira before and he walked onto the pitch... He didn't even start. So, you know, when you have a debut and as a fan or, or, or possibly even as a teammate, when you know someone's going to be playing for their first start, it feels like, you know, there's a lot of pre-match looking and sussing out someone's body language and what do you reckon, even before they've kicked a ball. But Patrick was on the bench. Um, he joined the club famously just before Arsene Wenger, some kind of... Uh, he was like some sort of sign, a vision, like a present in advance of him actually turning up to give an idea of what Arsene Wenger was going to do to this club. Um, but that game against Sheffield Wednesday was just incredible because it, Arsenal were quite crap really at that point. 10th in the league um, and, uh, uh, you know, a bit flat. Didn't have a permanent manager. Pat Rice was in charge temporarily. This guy called Arsene Wenger that no, most people had never heard of and didn't know anything about, were sceptical about, was still in Japan and what do they know about football? And um, Arsenal were losing 1-0 to Sheffield Wednesday. And then Ray Parler got an injury and Patrick Vieira came on. And the best thing, the thing I liked it about it almost best of all is when he spoke about it in uh, the future, I uh, asked him what he remembered about that. And he said, well, I wasn't really watching the game. <laughs> like, so for 28 <laughs> minutes while the game was going on, he it was his first time on the bench at Highbury in English football, really. And although he'd been training for a few weeks and he was just looking at the crowd and looking at the shape of the stands. And, you know, when you're somewhere new and you're just checking it all out. Yeah. So he wasn't really paying attention. And then suddenly it was like, boy, you get warmed up, you're on. And he, he literally changed the club and the way that they played football from the first second he walked on the pitch. And there was almost this audible, like, <gasps> when he first did something, he won the, won the ball and, and, and went off and like he does with those fantastic, elegant, long legs. And everybody kind of nudged their neighbour or looked at each other and went, wow. And I think he wowed us for years. I think he's a phenomenal player. I love him. 
He was a phenomenal player. I, I mean, we'll go back to talking about their debut in a second. I'd like to ask everyone what their favourite Patrick Vieira moment is. Lee, we'll start with you. I mean, you trained with him, you played with him. Do you have a particular favourite moment aside from the debut? Well, it kind of probably links into the debut because um, as, as much as Amy's described the wow feeling from the stand about when he came on and went, wow, I think... I have to be honest, most of the players were saying the same thing because up until that point, he was absolutely useless in training. <laughs> Honestly, we have to say, I have to, you know, he had, a, he had a knee injury when he first came. He was struggling with his medial or his cartilage or medial knee ligament or something. So we never really saw the best of him. He was kind of like <clears throat> very gangly, very sort of awkward looking in his, in his training kit. And he, he's got a really unorthodox running style Patrick you wouldn't you wouldn't look at him and say you know he can get up and down the pitch he's an athlete he's just he's just quite awkward in, in his in his running style and he's the way that he plays the game and yet still majestic as well which is quite a feat to be able to mix the two together but certainly in training leading up to that that debut there's no way he was going to be in the team you know he was absolutely he should be on the bench because he hadn't shown enough he was still you know as a young boy he was still bedding in and it was the right thing to do to sort of ease him in gently and uh, so there was definitely uh, the players were taken by just a little bit of shock when he came on and started all of a sudden commanding the game from that midfield it was like whoa hang on a minute it's Patrick's brother come on or something what, who is this guy because he, he had not shown a tap in training up until that point so my favourite moment is the turning point from switching from Patrick the trainer to Patrick the match player uh, James, what about you? Wow, it's really hard to sort of pick one moment because it's a player I absolutely adored. But if I had to go for one, there was a funny thing about Patrick in his first few seasons with Arsenal. Because even though he's about six foot four, when Arsenal had a corner, his position wasn't actually in the penalty box too often. Although he scored a lot of headers later in his time with Arsenal in the second half of his career there, he would often take up a spot kind of on the edge of the box. And when the ball broke to him, he would be there to sort of unleash a shot at goal. And the one that will always stick in my memory, and probably a lot of memories of people listening, is the one against Manchester United in 1997, in the season where we went on to win the double. It's 3-2 in that game. I think David Platt got the winning goal off a header. But Vieira hits a shot from the corner of the box after it comes out to him. And the the angle and the trajectory of it as it goes in off the crossbar, the power in it, it was just a great moment and it set that team on its way to a, a brilliant, brilliant season. I have to step in again here because obviously I played and trained with him and he was, and he was notoriously a rubbish finisher in training. <laughs> and, you know, let him shoot. He gets the ball, let him shoot. And, and I think, you know, although he did score, he did score goals. I mean, he couldn't edit for Toffee. I mean, I'm talking about him as he was the world's worst player. He was so good, and yet there were so many bits of his game you would go, oh, he could be better than that, he could be better than that. And I think that, that just shows you what a, what a master of the craft of his positional play, his fight, his ability to be out of... His balance on the ball was his massive strength. And, be, you know, he knew when players were coming in on the side of him, he would just, like, slope past them. And his use of his, his body weight was absolutely brilliant but we used to take we used to take the mickey out of him in training like if he got through through on goal just let him have it because he won't score you know it was kind of but but oh, on a saturday he just he, he literally took his clothes off and put this 
uniform of brilliance on with the Arsenal kit and transformed himself into a, an absolute world-class footballer. It was. Uh, it's sort of interesting uh, what James was saying there about the goal he scored against May United. It should be noted he injured himself celebrating after that one <laughs> uh, right in front of us lot when he on did his my knee slide. On my, he slid into my foot because if you if you look, look at the celebration <laughs> as he slides, I go to greet him and he slides on the floor and his knee hit my foot and he went ah and as he went ah I bent down I said what sort he goes I've done my knee ligaments on your foot <laughs> and I went really and he went off at half time so you injured for, him he was out for two and a oh, half weeks Lee. yeah I did it he's my fault yeah. yeah no problem uh, Amy um I, I mean it's interesting what the guys are saying about the. You know, there's not that many goals to choose from uh, for, from Patrick, uh, if you want. Oh, to there are some out. pretty important ones, actually. Well, I I'm assuming yeah. you to have call some. you up on that. Go on, then. Well, I, <laughs> as is kind of typical, I started to prepare a list for the question of the day. And I decided I had to stop myself because I had so many things about Patrick that I, that I loved and I couldn't choose a favourite. But um, just in terms of goals, if you want to talk about them... Um, there were two in the 2004 season that were very mm. memorable, notably after two minutes at White Hart Lane. And what a move from, you know, uh, winning it on the edge of, of, of Arsenal's own box, the careering forward at such high speed. Um, and, and, and then Vieira kind of pumped through the, the whole of the pitch uh, to kind of overtake Thierry Henry and get on the end of uh, of the ball that came in and slide it in. And I loved his celebration. He's almost like w wafting his hand to say, ah, get away, go away, go away, just in front of the Tottenham fans. It was really something. <laughs> um, and then if not that long after, he scored the goal that essentially capped the Invincibles because yeah. losing at home to Leicester on, uh, on the last day and um, came back to win 2-1 and... It was a, a classic Bergkamp through ball uh, for Vieira, who just uh, just did the rest calmly to finish it off. And I think those two have a nice little um, on, ongoing joke that's been going ever since uh, about, you know, Dennis says that through his passes that he made Patrick's career. You know, he, he enjoys telling <laughs> him that. Um, they had a great friendship, actually. Patrick and Dennis were very close, very sort of similar, dry sense of humour. Um and I think that was something that maybe influenced Patrick when he arrived. They became quite close and it was something that I think impacted on the way he was in terms of how he he felt in the team and how he how he went on to lead other players. It's almost like if you've got the respect from Dennis, even as a young man as he was, that, that says something. And just the last goal was literally his, you know, I said, wow, at his first kick for Arsenal in 1996. And I said, wow with his last kick for Arsenal, which was the penalty in 2005 to win the FA Cup. And um, I loved that because when you're watching penalty shootouts and there's that, there's these lulls when a kick has been taken and the, the person who takes the kick walks back and the person who's going to take the next kick walks up from the halfway line. It's a kind of drama within the drama. And in that particular game, obviously, Arsenal Man United full of, uh, players in that era who had been um, challenging each other for supremacy for a, a long, long time and knew each other quite well and had quite a lot of deep-seated emotions held towards one another. And um, at the end of that, it was Roy Keane walking one way and Patrick Vieira walking the other way. And it was like a duel out of some sort of 
old cowboy film or something. Uh, it was in Cardiff, and Roy Keane was walking in one direction, and and Fiera was walking in the other, like this slow walk. And they didn't catch a glance; they walked straight past each other, almost brushing shoulders, without looking at one another. And Patrick just walked up to the spot and just smashed in the goal. And then, maybe typically of him as well, ran straight over to Jens Lehmann if he didn't really want the acclaim from for himself. He went to make sure that the goalie who made the decisive save got the glory that day. I also love that moment, Amy, because we absolutely didn't, didn't deserve to win that game. There was something <laughs> beautiful about that. Um, for me, um, well, you've taken the winner against Leicester, which was just, no, but it was a beautiful moment. It was the fact that it was just rolled along the floor and Patrick strolled round in what I think was a beautiful way and just tapped it in. Um, I will take the shot against Newcastle into the top corner from 30 yards because... That ball mm. went as straight as I've seen a ball ever hit, and I and I love watching it. But the moment for me um, was a tackle he made in the cup final against Liverpool when he took the ball off Steven Gerrard um, at um, in Cardiff, and I've never seen an entire end of fans. The entire Arsenal section stood up and roared when he came running in from the side and stole the ball off Steven Gerrard, and I just thought it was it. And he and the thing was he did it so elegantly as well. It wasn't a brutal tackle in any way. It was just tough and it was timed beautifully. And he came away with the ball, and we all stood up. I mean, obviously, it all ended up in tears that day, but uh, that's another story. Um, so back to that debut. Uh, Amy, you've talked to, uh, you've written about this. Were we all there, by the way? Lee, you were playing, weren't you? I should hope so. Yeah, yeah. Lee, you were playing. Uh, James, were you there? <laughs> no, I was. It was on telly, I think. It was a Monday night, and I was watching it on Sky. I mean, well, the reason I'm asking is because I'm wondering whether we all have, knowing what how Patrick's career went, do we see that through rose-tinted spectacles? I mean, I certainly no. remember him bringing the ball down and beating a couple of players right in front of us where we were sat and thinking wow, this kid's good. And also, we'd never seen anyone that shape before, really. Mm. Um, as someone in the Times called it, a thinking man's Carlton Palmer, <laughs> which <laughs> I thought was a little harsh. Um, but is it, it's not, there's no sort of rose-tinted spectacles going uh, going on here. I'll ask you, Amy, first of all. Well, not for me, because I just wrote saying it was the best debut I ever saw. Um, uh, I just, wow. I, I felt something that night. And I think, to contextualise it slightly, Arsenal's midfield had been, you know, maybe not its best in those couple of years or so preceding Patrick's arrival. And um, the midfield up until uh, he came on in that game, that season centre midfield duo was Ray Parler and Stephen Morrow for virtually every game. So that just kind of, just, just to say where we were. And then, of course, uh, this is said with... with absolutely no disrespect meant to the, the, the calibre of player who was in midfield towards the end of George Graham's era. But there was a lot of homegrown players like David Hillier, Ian Selly, uh, Morrow, who I just mentioned, who, not to say that they weren't talented footballers, but they weren't of that necessarily world-class calibre. Um, and I think also it was still very much a, a, an English-British style of game that that uh, Arsenal been playing for, for a very long time. And what Patrick brought in and, and coming um, into a team that already had Dennis Bergkamp and very, very soon afterwards would also add sort of Petit and Nelka uh, over Mars. The, you know, within a year, that, that team was a kind of 50-50 old school English and this more 
kind of continental flair sophistication that came in with with arson uh, and speed as well which was a, the big thing that a lot of those players bought if it wasn't a physical speed it was kind of a mental speed of, of, of playing the game and I just think that Patrick was Dennis Burkham called him the, the first modern midfield player and that was what I felt that night you were looking at a completely different breed in midfield to what We'd been watching for years and years, and it was really exciting. Um, I just felt that he represented something, and, and that's why I felt it was such an, an important debut because it was, yes, it was about him, but it was also about Arsenal's promise and what was coming. And we didn't really know that at the time. That's roast into glasses, fine. We didn't know how good it was going to get. But in hindsight, that was a, a big indicator of what was around the corner. Now, I should say, by the way, at this point, we've had a lot of questions. Ross Newell, uh, Roscoe7777, uh, talks about how he always turned up when it mattered. Uh, did you feel that about him, Lee? Was he one of those guys that you could always always rely on? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you could always rely and get stuck in. I think he's either second or joint first on the amount of red cards in the Premier League. So he was always... <laughs> there is that. With eight or nine, I think he was always, he was always in the mix. I'm not a little bit confused as to Dennis calling him the the first modern-day midfielder. I don't have no clue what that means. Um, so anyone who goes, oh, yeah, yeah, the, 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 let, then on letters on a postcard and let me know what that means, the first modern midfield player, what, do, you know, no clue what that means. I'm going to ask Dennis when I see him because there's no doubt he was different. Um, I think in training, you, you even though he wasn't, didn't hit the ground running because of his injury, etc. When he first came, there was no doubt that if he was any good at all, he was something that we hadn't really seen um, before. So whether he means that, I, I think his the way his style, his physicality, um, there's been a load of box to box midfield players. There's been a load of midfield players who who hold and and sweep up. There's been loads of midfield players who do all of those jobs. Um, that's goes with what midfield is you're in the middle of the pitch so you've got to kind of do everything and I think that the way that modern football has kind of pigeonholed a lot of types of midfield roles you know the holding midfield player the number 10 the 8 the 6 and all this I mean it's a lot of it's a load of rubbish in my book um but Patrick did cover like like Manu Petit he did cover every single blade of grass and yeah I think that whether it's whether you you view that as the modern player or um, or just a midfield player, I mean Brian Robson did pretty much every blade of grass as well. So what, what does that make him? Um, and he loved to tackle. He loved descending off. He loved getting a goal. He loved breaking into the box. He loved sweeping up in front of his back four. So, um, but I think I think it's because of Patrick's size and his his grace and physicality that he kind of stood out and people went, oh, hang on a minute. And I think we got that in training. We kind of went, if he's any good at all, he's going to be very, very good because he had, he, he had, you couldn't get the ball off him in training. If he decided to train, which a lot of the time, and I'm being honest, and I'll have this conversation with him when I see him, I'm pretty, most of the time he didn't turn up in training. He just kind of moped in and went, oh, my body's really tired. And then he was, he was the oldest um, football I've ever seen in my life. I thought he was 60-odd every day he came in. 
And but he had this ability on a Friday just to go, okay, Saturday tomorrow I'm going to be brilliant, and my body's not hurting anymore. Yeah, he had a lot of aches and pains and things going on, and he, in order for him to be right on Saturday, he needed to come in and kind of moan to to the rest of the players and kind of not not really be fully at it in training. But we, you know, there's certain players you're allowed to be like that, and he was one of them. I was just thinking actually that. As much as he was brilliant in that Sheffield Wednesday game, and he absolutely was, I always remember Arsene's first game in the dugout, I believe, was was Blackburn away, and that was about two or three weeks later. And Vieira had another... He stayed in the team after Sheffield Wednesday, and Ian Wright's goal in that game, I think he scores by two, he scored but his both, second both goal, made by Patrick, I think. Yeah, and the, 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 for the second one, the way he breaks away in midfield... You know, I think Lee's right. There were different components of Patrick's game that we'd seen before, but there was such fluidity in the way that he connected them, winning the ball, eating up the ground, playing the pass. He plays a lovely pass off the outside of his right foot for Wrighty to score the second. And the fact that he performed at that level in Arsenal's first game, it kind of said something about Arsenal's style and I think opened the door to, you know, a sort of a new look Arsenal couple of questions from Twitter here, one particularly for Lee, uh, Chris Russell, uh, at Mr Neat. Uh, can you ask Lee how often Patrick did the flick over his head in training? Everyone knew he was going to do it, but no one could stop him doing it. Never seen him do it in training. Um, but <laughs> he couldn't be bothered. <laughs> couldn't be bothered normally on the treatment table, <laughs> limping around. Um, but yeah, it kind of, you're kind of on a pitch, you kind of went, oh, here it comes, here it comes. Oh, he's gone. I can't believe he's gone for it. Um but he had, a, he, to be honest with you, he had, he had every sort of body swerve trick in the book. He's, that's how elegant he was, and that, and that, as I said to you before, that was his probably his biggest strength, his ability to be able to suck players towards him, thinking, oh, they're going to get the ball, and then he just the the, the way he moved his body was, you know, because he wasn't, he wasn't, you wouldn't say, you know, in sprints, you know, he'd be, he he, he would be right in the middle of the pack. It wouldn't be. There's nothing explosive about him in that respect, and yet he was really quick once he got into his stride, and he and he was so powerful, you know, he'd get in your way, run over you. He was one of them. So, and he was he was strong, really strong boy. Can I just ask Lee about the training thing and him not really being at it in training sessions? How mm. unusual is that? Did you ever come across anyone else who had that capacity to sort of not really give it their all in the week and then could just turn up on a Saturday? Or was he pretty unique in that respect? Well, certainly, I, I grew up on on that, especially before I went to Arsenal. But also, you know, that that was a, a minimum at, under George. You had to be fully at it. You know, you couldn't. So I've been. I was brought up like that, and not many players got away with it, to be honest with you. Um, and he would be one that would. You know, I, I don't. I'm not speaking out of turn here because other. You know, you you speak to other lads and say, well, you just said. Was Patrick a good trainer? You you'll get the answer. No, you know it's, it's, he wasn't a great. And you do you do get the odd player, but very rarely in a group like as strong as ours that they can get away with it. I'm sure, you know, if Dennis had come in and started spinning plates on his nose and messing about and juggling in the corner, we'd have gone. Carry on, Den. We'll let you know when we finished. And then because you know that you're going to get something on a Saturday, it's going to be absolutely off the charts and I think Patrick sort of fell into that category you yeah but Lee him, Lee sorry yeah. to interrupt but the fact is Dennis when Dennis turned up he was an established world-class player and you knew mm -hmm. that whereas Patrick was 18 years old 
Yeah, that's true. No, I think he was, I, I, and I put most of the stuff down with with Patrick and training. Let me let me get you. Let's get it right. Here. He didn't come in and not try. He just he always seemed his body always seemed to be failing him from an early age. You know, he had a lot. He seemed to always to have injuries and tiredness and. And you, I think when you looked at him, how he played on a Saturday, no wonder he's tired because he, you know, he he did every he did every yard on the pitch. So and he always seemed to have a niggle, a knee, a hip, or something. So it was kind of that was what I'm talking about. And so we'd allow him to sort of, you okay, Patrick? You know, get yourself ready for the Saturday. And um, I think you know I'm probably paint, painting over his whole career and saying that's how he was. I think in the early days he was a little bit. Um, he was a little bit more enthusiastic to, than towards the more established when he got established and went, you know what, um, I, I need to do this in order to get ready for a Saturday. So well, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, um, Amy, I just, to uh, Ian, you. Ian, yeah, on. hang on. Before you get to Cross, he wasn't 18, he was 20. <laughs> was he? Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. Listen, and you are the check. font of this sort of knowledge and I appreciate it, Henry. <laughs> At least you're correcting um, me within the same podcast this time as opposed to the week <laughs> later well, when I get loads of people piling on on Twitter. Um, I wanted to ask you, Amy, by the way, because um, Lee was talking about how, you know, he used to draw players in. I remember thinking when I first saw him, I've never seen a player really who could have four players around him and I'd be more than happy for any of the other Arsenal players to pass it to him because I would have faith that he would come out of that uh, come out of that with the ball. Well, what uh, the thing I in my mind's eye that I think of when I think of Patrick, and I thought this was different, was he had this ability to sort of win the ball with his leg outstretched. And while he was doing it, he was kind of already on the way up towards making the pass. I don't really know how he did it, but he seemed to have the tackle and the next pass almost within the same entity sometimes. It was so slick. Um, but just going back also to what Lee was saying about, about the training. And one thing um, I've always found is that Patrick doesn't mind admitting himself that he was a pretty terrible trainer. Uh, he definitely said it out loud quite a few times. And I don't think he'd be um, taking any offence to anyone else suggesting that about him because I think that he felt that that wasn't his strength. But he knew that when it... I, he almost said that he needed the intensity of games to get him yeah. going. It was as if there was something in his makeup where training didn't really turn him on as such. It, it was something that you had to do. Um but he didn't love it. I think there are certain players who probably relish training or probably are more naturally inclined towards putting the effort in there. Uh, that wasn't really his personality. But even sometimes during games, he said that he used to sometimes feel his own... If it was easy, if a game was easy, he would feel his intensity sort of dipping slightly. And he actually used to sometimes ask some of his teammates to give him a bit of a kick up the backside. And... Sol Campbell definitely said that that was something he felt was part of his responsibility, that he had to, he had permission from Patrick. I'm, I'm a bit bored. I'll just get myself sent off. That's why he got sent off so many times. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, that's an interesting lead into the next question. Uh, Kieran Paris uh, at TCIP9. Um, should he get a statue of his own at the Emirates? Uh, and also, does he rank above uh, Dennis Bergkamp and Henri as the most important player in Wenger's golden era, uh, as he played an important role in all three uh, league campaigns when we won. Um, James, I come to you first. Do you think he should have a statue at the Emirates? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see why not. I don't want to choose between him, Burkamp and Henri. That seems a bit of a tricky one. But I think he is clearly, you know, as influential in the great Arsenal teams of that period as, as any other player. Uh, although I have to say, I think when you talk about Patrick, you also have to talk about the partners that he had. Because in Emmanuel Petit and Gilberto Silva, he had two really outstanding midfield partners that, that helped complement him. But as an and individual, Edu as well, by the way. Edu, Ray Parler, he played with some great midfield players. Uh, but yeah, I certainly would. And he was a fantastic captain and a, a different type of captain, wasn't he, to what we'd been used to under, under Tony Adams. I mean... I'd be interested to know, Lee, Like, did you envisage him as a leader? Did you see him becoming captain of Arsenal one day? Yeah, I, th I think that was always on the cards. He, he, he had some great, well, he had a great teacher. I think he, he learned an awful lot from, from Tony, the way Tony that, you know, ran the dressing room and, and he had some, Tony had some senior players around him that were easy to handle, um, you know, so I, and I think he learned from that. I think you know we 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 talked to um, Thierry about you know we talked to him about what he saw and what he was expected of him when he came to Arsenal. And Patrick was the same. You know, he, he came into that dressing room, a young boy, and just like a sponge, just sat there and watched it all in front of him. And as we've seen with his the way he talks now as a coach and a manager, the, the intelligence, the understanding of the game you know all of that is it was building blocks on top of huge talent that and an intelligence that was able to take all that on board and you know not talk when he didn't need to talk just watch and see the dressing room act out in front of him and just suck it all in there's an absolute nap that he was going to be uh, a captain a leader um you know you would you'd want to play for him even the senior players you know, if I was on, if I was in that dressing room now, I would definitely, he would be definitely one that I would, you know, go into the trenches with for want of a better expression because he's he's got that, the the leadership. You know, you've got to lead by example, and nobody would be beat him to a tackle. Nobody would be, you know, he wouldn't shirk anything, and that includes responsibility, as Stoney just said, responsibility of receiving the ball. It's not just about how hard you are or how much you can put a tackle on Roy Keane. It's about playing against Roy Keane. The fear, because there's a fear of failure when you're playing at that level. As confident as you are and, and, and assured as your team is good and your teammates, all those battles we used to have with Man United, you know, we've, we've got to be all on our best in order to beat them. And they were saying the same thing. But that's not just the ability on the ball, the ability to run hard and chase Giggsy down the line and and pa pass the ball. It's the it's the it's the bravery of receiving the ball when when things are not going very well and the crowd are getting on your back because United are winning or something. That that's the bravery that comes with that goes unseen a lot of the time. And he certainly had that in bucket loads. You could you could oh, I'm, in, I'm in a bit of trouble here. I'm just going to give it Patrick that little ball inside. I used to roll to him, and then he'd do something brilliant and sweep it out to the other side. And then as he as as the ball has gone out to the to the left. He would look over his shoulder at me as if to say, "Yeah, I got you out of the shit there, didn't I?" And I go, "Yeah, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Amy, I'm sure you'd agree about the uh, the statue. I think we we all would. Um, I mean, it was it, it, you know from the, from the way he started and what he did for the club. He is just as important a figure as uh, Dennis Burkamp or Thierry Henry, is he not? 
I always think when you get asked that question by people, who's your favourite all-time player or best all-time player or something like that, I don't know about you lot, but I think it's a bit of a struggle. And there's almost the sense that you have to say Dennis or Thierry because skill-wise they did things that, you know, scaled heights that are very, very unusual. And yet I find myself always in these conversations and debates having almost a kind of internal dilemma because I want in my heart to include Patrick in up there as well and also Ian Wright and for different reasons those are players who I just enjoyed watching in a way that just you always felt when they were representing your team that you were so happy that they were out there playing their way in your team's colours um so, uh, you know, I think Patrick has a strong, strong case as any different type of player, obviously, but uh, one of Arsenal's best 100% for me of all time, really. Uh, Lee, I wanted to ask you, Matt Simkin has written in, at Matt Simkin, thank you for the uh, tweet, about how Patrick stood up to every player in the league who tried to bully any of his teammates. I mean, it's what you were saying about a guy who you would follow into the trenches, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, and I think, you know, that, that dressing room solidarity thing that, that we all talk about and it's always mentioned about team spirit and all of the stuff that goes into making a team as opposed to the individual's skill-wise and all of that lot is, is kind of a, it's, it's a real tangible thing when you've got it in a dressing room and it's also really tangible when, when it's not there. You can, you can, <laughs> yes. almost, you can almost go into... We, we could kind of go in the dressing room before a game, and you can you can smell um, togetherness and an, an aggression and a and a willing to win. It's in the air. You can kind of go some some. You're going on some match days, and you you almost you could almost say, let's not bother playing because we've won. You, we, we, there's just the the lads are buzzing. There's a there's a there's a fizz in the in the conversation. So you you kind of get an essence of what the players individually a feeling because every player on a, on a match day you all feel different you're all trying to get to and that's where Wenger was brilliant he, he, he tried his utmost to give us the best opportunity to feel the best we could at three o'clock on a Saturday and that's all you as a player that's all you're aiming for is to wake up on Saturday morning and go from 10 o'clock to three o'clock in those kind of five hours feeling excitement of playing without your ankle hurting you feel that low pressure in your chest because you feel tired you haven't slept very well you just want those five hours to be those and they're the most exciting five hours of professional football the lead up to a game when you're feeling great and and you get that from your teammates around when you turn up at the dressing room is an hour and a half before kickoff you walk in and you smell the liniment and the and all of those little senses that you kind of go and then Patrick will come out of the of, of the treatment room and crack a joke and he's buzzing and you think right well he's all right and then you might watch see someone across the room and go oh he's a bit quiet today so I'll as a senior player I'll go right I'll, I'll wander over make sure he's all right Robert Perez he might be a bit down and Patrick would be buzzing all around people making sure everybody's fine and then obviously he had Tony Adams around him as well so he was kind of the the, the lesser of the two if you like but as soon as Tony left and we all kind of left you could almost feel him 
you know, grow into that role of, of caretaker. And, and, and you, it gives you a half a goal start every time you go out. If you've got that and he had it, you go out. And so, you know, Roy Keane, when he's down in the tunnel, he's an intimidating character. You want Patrick Vieira standing next to him, giving him, right, let's have it. Because I, I can't be bothered about Roy Keane. I've got, I'm looking over at, you know, Ryan Giggs thinking, how am I going to sort him out? So I'm concentrating on him. So you need the players, each individual, 11 v 11, to stand up and go, I'm going to take care of him. And when I've taken care of him, I'm going to help Dicko out with Ryan Giggs. I mean, he didn't do a great job in the semi, I'll, I'll admit <laughs> that. But that's that's the type of roles that you yeah. need. You need to be able to do your concentrate on doing your job and allow the person to do his job. And then, right, I'm doing it, I've sorted him out. Anybody need any help? That's yeah. how a team works. And you have to do your job first. Well, Amy, it's, I wanted to ask you about the captaincy because you said in the piece that when he first got the captaincy, uh, he felt a little bit concerned about it. Yeah, I think when um, Patrick was first off, offered the captaincy, he wasn't sure. He uh, had a, to wrestle with it a little bit to to be certain that he was going to have the respect that he felt he, he needed to do the job in the dressing room. Because even though Tony Adams um, uh, retired in 2002, same time as Lee, there was still some very senior players in that dressing room. So to offer it to Patrick when Dennis is still in the dressing room and when David Seaman is still in the dressing room, um, it felt like something he needed to think about. So I don't think he said yes immediately to Arsene Wenger, even though he was really glad, obviously. And he sought the counsel of the senior players before he went back and said, I'm in. Um, because he needed to feel that he could look in the eye of people like Dennis and Dave Seaman and not feel that they didn't think it was right. And they did. So um, he was obviously knew he was following an immense... Uh, kind of shoes as far as yes. captaincy was concerned. Um, Tony Adams holds a very special place in everybody's heart for the way that he was Arsenal's captain with very good reason. And Patrick was never going to be a version of that captain. And he knew that, but he could do it his own way, which was mostly by leading by example, by ex exactly what Lee was saying just now, being that person in the tunnel or out on the pitch or in the dressing room who's looking after everybody else as well as making sure that he's okay. Um, but I think he did little things differently. So he knew how important it was to get the camaraderie going and, it, you know, the, the old-fashioned Tuesday club or, or going out and, and drinking culture that had been more of the old-fashioned variety uh, in a dressing room, that wasn't going to work anymore. So Patrick started up these um, these dinners. So he would invite all all the players... Uh, and often with their wives or girlfriends or whatever, to go and have dinner somewhere. So it was a, a little bit more sort of um, sophisticated than the old-fashioned socialising <laughs> that went on. Uh, Lee, we're going to let you go in a second. Could you sum up what Patrick Vieira meant to the Arsenal? Well, I think the fact that you're talking about, you know, you're talking about him and we all are about him having a statue says everything that you need to know about him. He was a colossus of a, of a midfield player who... Um, let's face it, very few players took on Roy Keane and not, you know, and stood their ground. And I think that's one of the biggest um, compliments I can pay him. You know, he, he literally would take anybody on. And I think a fitting um, successor to 
Tony Adams is probably the biggest compliment I could ever pay him. It was almost a seamless transition from Tony to to Patrick. So, you know, that, that for me says everything. Thank you, Lee. Lovely way to sum it up. Nice to speak to you. See ya. Nobody mentioned Vic's Vapor Rub, by the way. Um, <laughs> I mean, we had a number of tweets mentioning it as well. Now, both of you guys have been uh, have been writing away. Uh, Amy, we've talked about your piece about Patrick's uh, debut. Um, James, I wanted to ask you about the piece you wrote about how Stan Kroenke's running of Arsenal compares with his US teams. I mean, this was written in collaboration with a number of uh, people. Um, what's the general verdict about Stan Kroenke? <laughs> uh, it's not great. Keep it it's clean. Not great. It's not great. It depends who, which of one of his teams you follow. I think if you're an LA Rams fan, and I say an LA Rams fan, crucially not one who's supported the Colorado franchise before it was displaced. I think you're pretty pleased with things. They were in the Super Bowl last year. They're getting themselves a nice new shiny stadium. But I think the rest of his teams, uh, I think Stan's reputation is kind of similar to what it is at Arsenal. You know, he's not someone who is putting his hand in his own pocket. Uh, And it was interesting to look at the way, you know, coronavirus and the the subsequent crisis has impacted and interfered with, you know, his various different interests. Um, I mean, of course, the wage system in the US is different. They have the salary cap and contracts are a bit more centralised. But it is interesting that Arsenal are, you know, the only one of his teams where the players have taken that pay cut. And they remain the only team in the Premier League to have taken a pay cut. And it kind of feels like all the discussion about cuts and deferrals has sort of gone away at this point. Uh, Arsenal managed to get theirs away. Uh, And I think it just shows maybe something about, well, A, the financial position the club's currently in, and that being somewhat precarious, maybe more precarious than other certain clubs, but also a little bit about the way KSC uh, do business. Did you get an idea from talking to the uh, the American guys uh, from his teams over there that what kind of involvement Josh has with the other teams in the franchise? I mean, Josh yeah, seems question. to be obviously might you know more involved lately with Arsenal and sort of as if it's been kind of handed over for him to have more direct involvement mm-hmm. with. And I wondered if that's the case with other ones or whether Arsenal is kind of Josh's thing. I think particularly with the Denver Nuggets in the NBA, Josh has been really closely involved. They've kind of been his pet project. They were the first one of KSC's teams. I think he was really given the reins uh, to sort of control effectively. And the Nuggets have done all right. You know, they've been a playoff team in the NBA, but they, they're not a championship team. And something that's levelled at the Nuggets and something I got from speaking to the guys in the US is, you know, they kind of do enough to be in the mix, but they don't necessarily financially go that extra mile and pay, uh, I think it's called a luxury tax on the salary cap to get the very top players, to make them a, a very top championship team. And again, that potentially feels somewhat symptomatic of of the way KSC work. But yeah, Josh's involvement uh, is, is not, is, you know, it's relatively positively received there. And I actually personally feel more and more encouraged that we are seeing more of him at Arsenal. You know, I think what a lot of Arsenal fans want is a sense of engagement from 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 KSC. And, and Josh being at as many games as he has been this season, you know, he's even at a, a dead rubber game in Vittoria in the Europa League. So I think, you know, they are a little bit more attentive on that front than they have been. Yeah, but James, is it is Josh just sent out when the fans get a bit upset about what's going on? <laughs> and, they, and in order to placate them... You know, Stan says to his boy, off you go, Josh, you got another one. Put some fires out for us. 
I don't know about that. Because actually, when the fans were really upset, uh, <laughs> Arsenal didn't pull the trigger on Unai Emery. So I- I'm not sure how much they were listening to fans in that respect. Uh, but But it is right to say that he is not running the club. You know, where there is an executive team in place, we know about, you know, Vinay and Raul, and they do have pretty much authority on, on running things there. So I know, what you mean. I know what you mean. Josh's presence is symbolic in some ways. Um, and in that respect, it is different, definitely, to his, his work in the NBA. Amy, I, I mean, you've obviously been involved reporting on the club and you, you've you known about the owners and you've spoken to the directors for years now. Um, do you think that the fans, we know too much about what goes on in the director's uh, box now, way more than we need to and perhaps it is good for us? Wow. Um, I'm not sure I'd put it that way. Well, the uh, reason I'm asking, Amy, I'm just saying, I, I just think there's a level of discomfort in terms of the fans and the way that they are. And this is not just at Arsenal, but uh, but generally, that there never was when w- these people were much more distant figures now. It, it seems like they're, they're lightning rods that we can turn our eye on when maybe the team and the manager aren't doing the job. Well, I think it was ever thus. I mean, going back to the 80s and standing outside grounds singing Sack the Board... That was a pretty common refrain at all sorts of football grounds, and that was a way of expressing um, uh, beliefs that didn't get thrown directly at the players or the manager, or maybe already had get th- thrown at them, and that hadn't got a reaction. Yeah. So the next place <laughs> to go was the board, and there was, yeah. you know, definitely days of some some old um, uh, 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 chairman having to sort of run the gauntlet back to his you know, Rolls Royce or something in the in the car park getting getting hurl, hurled all sorts of pelters by, by fans, you know, back in the day. So I'm not sure it is a completely new phenomenon in that way. Um, I think obviously the big change is that having the public AGMs uh, for so many years, you know, Arsenal were accustomed to this, um, it became a bit of a charade at the end, but, you know, go, going right back to... Um, I remember going to uh, AGMs in in, in Highbury, um, where the board would be there, and uh, the single shareholders would all sh- show up, and you know they were always quite fruity, and and it was good that there was that opportunity once a year for pe- ordinary people to be able to make a point, and sometimes the points were absolutely ludicrous, like whinges about you know. You know, the, the, you know what 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 beverage you might be able to get in the West Upper or <laughs> what have you, and and sometimes they you yeah. know sometimes it would be about I don't know access to reserve games or, or I don't know what or sometimes they're about the cost of season tickets or sometimes they're about the, the you know complaints about what was going on with the team or in a way that that those things don't really change. However, that whole avenue has been closed off. It's over. So while there are occasional kind of um, uh, almost slightly for show situations where there might be, you know, either Vinay and Raul or even in, in, at the American tour last year, Josh gave an audience to a couple of bloggers. Um, you, there are occasions where that, that there is a communication, a sort of public communication between some selected fans and some important people who aren't players or, or the manager. Uh, but it, but in a more general way, that's over. And that's a pity because I think that was kind of 
part of Arsenal and part of the history and heritage of the club that there was always this opportunity to, you know, to have communications. I mean, going really way back, some of us, and I, I say us, including myself, used to write letters to the board and get responses <laughs> on Arsenal-headed headed, uh, paper. Yeah. And some of those uh, responses would be in the in the um, starting of thank you for our interest uh, interest yes. in our affairs, <laughs> and some of them gave you the time of day and actually listened to your your points. But you know, I'm not sure any of us would want to be on the end of fan mail from <laughs> thousands of people because most of us write stupid things Slightly and come unhinged. up with idiotic things. Like it's only a a variation of social media, I suppose, and you're you're open to anything, really. Um, we've been talking about uh, Patrick Vieira. Let's have a song from each of you. James, do you have a song? Well, forgive me for being a bit unimaginative, but I, I just picked Volare for Vieira. Oh, of course you did. Volare Oh E I was going to do that. I always get third go, but go on then. Valari's nice. Amy, could you add anything to that? Well, I was going to choose something Senegalese because I'm a big fan of uh, Yusun Dor and Barba Mal. Um, uh, I think I'll go for Barba Mal, a song called Tiedo, which I absolutely love from an album called Firing in Futa. Uh, because why not? All right, well, let me cross out Valari and let me cross out anything <laughs> Senegalese. <laughs> They're um, excellent choices. I'm just going to have to bow to your, your musical knowledge uh, there. Thank you, by the way, for uh, writing in with your tweets. I'm sorry if we didn't get to them. I think we got to quite a few uh, this week. Uh, thank you to Lee Dixon, Amy Lawrence and James Manicolas. And also thank you to Tao, our producer, as well. Uh, I've been Ian Stone. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.